the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The rise of the evangelical heretic. And then, is it true that God wants you to be a burden? You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us for the end of the week. We made it. It is Friday. Glad that you are with us today. If you have missed any of our shows this week, uh, let me encourage you to go get the podcast wherever it is. Get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Aubrey, happy Friday. How are you today? Happy Friday. I am doing wonderfully. I'm very happy it's Friday. Well, uh, really glad we have a weekend ahead of us. How about you? I am uh, likewise glad glad for the week to be over. It's been a good week, but glad to uh, move on to the weekend. Although for us pastors, the weekend is always a complex deal, right? It's always a bit of a... Uh... That's kind of true, isn't it? I have a friend who is no longer a pastor, like as of recently, and she keeps texting me on the weekends like, I bet I'm having a better weekend than you are. I'm having the best weekend ever. I'm like, you be quiet, girl. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, That's good pastor humor right there. Okay. Uh, something that came out, was it last week, the week before? It was that kind of explosive survey uh, from... Oh, how did we say the name? Ligonier? Is that how we... Or you, I, I you thought, thought it was more... Ligonier. Yeah, but that's a disease, isn't it? <laughs> oh, you're right. <laughs> so it's the R.C. Sproul organization yes. uh, that R.C. Sproul started many, many decades ago. And it deals with the spiritual health of uh, of Christendom, of our yeah. country, of, of what's going on. And it was really telling, Aubrey. It, it was, really was. It was so fascinating. And now people are starting to reflect upon it. You and I discussed it. People can go find it on the podcast. But we discussed stuff like... The decrease of people who think Jesus is the way to heaven, the mm-hmm. decrease of people who think that Jesus was anything more than a good teacher. And this isn't population as a whole. These are self-described Christians. And so you and I wrestled with the, I don't know, can you be a Christian and believe that? <laughs> can I you know, I even? think that, that's what with the shocking was, is that it was, it was Christian based research. So like you sort of understand the outcome of these questions for non-Christians, but the fact that these were self-identifying Christians say they're not sure that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, or they're not sure that Jesus is more than a teacher. That was pretty shocking. Uh, and you're right. More and more people are responding. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, Russell Moore kind of reflected upon this at Christianity Today the other day when he wrote The Rise of the Evangelical Heretic. He said, uh, to recap, the survey showed that evangelical respondents expressed a confusing and sometimes incoherent mix of beliefs. Most affirmed the Trinity, at least partially agreed with the statement that Jesus was first and greatest being created by God the Father, uh, which is, of course, the teaching of the heretic Arius. He talks about his skepticism a little bit towards surveys, but that he's concerned about this. Um, 
He says today's American evangelical Christianity seems to be more focused on hunting heretics internally than perhaps in any other generation. The difference, however, is that excommunications are happening not over theological views, but over partisan politics or the latest social media debate. So he's trying to get at the fact that we're more concerned with how people vote or what they think of certain culture wars than their actual theology. And he kind of sums up his thoughts this way. But something more seems to be going on here, something involving an overall stealth secularization of conservative evangelicalism. What worries me isn't so much that evangelical Christians can't articulate Christian orthodoxy in a survey. It's that to many of them. Christian orthodoxy seems boring and irrelevant compared to claiming religious status for already existing political, cultural, and ethno-national tribes. Let me sum up what Russell Moore said so deeply and beautifully yeah. there is a lot of people don't care about orthodoxy. A lot yeah. of people don't care about theological orthodoxy, being right. having the right theology as much as they care. Of, do people have the right politics? Do people have the right voting record? Do people have the right? Uh, are they saying the right things for our tribe? Uh, if Russell Moore there is right, that's more worrisome than the survey itself. Yeah. So I think in one sense, it's worrisome. And then you kind of, especially for those of us who are in church leadership, you kind of go, okay, now what do we do? Right? Like, I feel like that's what I've been dwelling on since this research came out is like, okay, so not that, not that either you or I have these massive churches, but for those that like we do shepherd or do teach or do lead, it strikes me then as like a pretty urgent invitation then to begin teaching orthodoxy in a way that's compelling and relevant. Mm. And I, I do think this is interesting that what has captured people's attention is no longer uh, tenets of our faith, mm-hmm. but these political wars, culture wars, tribal wars. And I mean, I think we could have put our, we could have put our finger on that like over the past couple of years, but to hear Russell Morris say it so succinctly, it is troubling. And I don't know. I don't know what to do except as a church leader to like, we got, I guess, dive in deeper with people yeah. and give them a compelling vision for why. And what we're, I think the important thing is this is where I'm even like struggling to get these words out. It's not that we need people to like mentally assent to certain doctrines. Like the whole point is unity with Christ. Mm. But what good doctrine does is protects us. What good orthodoxy does is protects us from being swayed by these cultural winds and making those things our God. And I mean, I said this before when we talked last week, but like when we don't have a strong Christology, like one example, the way we think about Jesus, that leads to all sort of deviant, weird beliefs about Jesus. I think an example of this, Brian, and this is an extreme example. So hear me out. This is not the norm. This is the extreme. But I, you know, I got a picture. I sent it to you. I said, is this real? A picture of this book going around at some of Trump's rallies, which are a picture of him. And it says Trump, like the son, son of God, God man yeah. of uh, son of God, son of man, like basically using Christ language around Trump. Mm-hmm. And again, that's extreme. 
But that's what I mean by a deviant Christology. Like if we don't have our orthodoxy right, that's the kind of things that are in production. And that's not, yeah. that's evil, period. Yeah. No, that's right. I love this quote. Uh, Russell Moore quotes New Testament scholar David uh, Nienhus, uh, who says this, that we have raised a generation of, quote, Bible quoters, not Bible readers. Mm. And uh, man, I find that to be fascinating. Russell Moore, you asked, what's the answer? Russell Moore is going to say the Bible is the answer. So let me read this and then you could close with just kind of some thoughts on what Moore says. He says, the Bible does far more than answer questions posed by current controversies and far more than just undergird doctrine. The Bible shapes and forms its hearers. The word of God does not return void. It reorients our priorities and our intuitions even before we know they need adjusting. We as the church and as families need many different ministries and gifts, but maybe Awana Bible study memorization classes or Sunday school sword drills are more important than worldview conferences. Wow. He talks about how Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and he used scripture. And this is how more ends. Jesus, the only son of God, begotten, not made light from light, true God from true God of the same essence as the father incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary knew his book and knew what mattered. Mm. If we don't follow his lead, we might have our quote values right side up and our theology upside down. Mm. There you go. Russell Moore says the answer is the Bible, Aubrey. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because earlier on this week, Monday show, we had on John Greco, who uh, he self-identified as a Bible geek. He has a devotion in the Psalms called The Ascent. And he really talked about what a what a miraculous thing it is that the God of the universe stoops so low to give us his word, literally a book that we can yep. open and we can read. And I think that's what we need to remember. Like the invitation to be students of the Bible is really an invitation to be like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and eating the better meal, soaking up what Jesus has to say so that we might be transformed into his likeness. So this is about not just our brains or our positions, but about our souls, about our heart, about our Christ likeness. And it does feel like perhaps the call now is what Russell's saying. Like, let's go back to some basic things of our faith, which includes reading the Bible and knowing the Bible. Yeah. The answer is often not some grand mystery, right? Mm -hmm. It is, but it's just hard. And uh, it starts for us as Christians let this survey be a an eye opener to our need to be committed to the word yeah. and to know the word. That that okay. quote is going to stick with me there. Uh, Bible quoters, not Bible readers. That is uh, that is pretty damning. So, uh, coming up next, I want to talk about community and friendship out of the Gospel Coalition. They write this: God wants you to be a burden. We're going to talk. What do they mean? That next here on the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. Aubrey, here's what I want to talk about. You mentioned this. Uh, you've mentioned this often. In fact, this was uh, your grinds my gears way back on Monday, and it's the idea of busyness, mm. right? People saying, oh, you're too busy and almost projecting it upon you. Yeah. Uh, and we do that to each other all the time, right? Oh, well, they, I don't want to be a burden to this person. They've got enough going on. They've got their family and their job and their, they've got their own problems. But over at the Gospel Coalition, I, I wondered when I read this, my first thought was, I wonder what you think of this. It says, 
God wants you to be a burden. This is written by Christine Gordon and Hope Blanton. And they begin with that exact story of uh, in a recent text message. I asked a friend how things were going with some work conversations that I knew were stressful. Her response, you've got so much going on. I'm sure it will work out. I don't want to be a burden. It says, we've heard this refrain over and over for 20 years, both in counseling and in the church. It's this idea, and they're going to get into what do we do about this. But don't we think this and hear this often, whether towards us or us towards other people? Like, man, I'd really like to talk to that person. I'd really like to connect with that person. But surely they don't have time for me and to deal with me and my problems or my time would just be a burden. And therefore it isolates us. We don't reach out to the people in our church or wherever else because we don't want to be a quote unquote burden. Do you ever hear this? You know, I actually just heard this this week, but it was kind of in a different context. And so I think this is interesting to think about, like, the lies we're believing or maybe the way the enemy is kind of using this tactic. Because this so there was there's a woman in our church in the hospital this week and another like uh, mutual friend, not like best friend, but connected, sent me a note or text. Should I send her a card? I don't want to be a burden. And I was oh, interesting. Myself, how is sending a sick person in the hospital a card a burden? But like, that's interesting that we kind of tell ourselves that like, it'll be too much if I'm too afford. And I think I've always, especially for people who are hurting and suffering, I, I have always err and told people err on the side of drawing near, send a text, send a card. You don't have to show up at their house unexpected. Like that might be burdensome, but like send a gift card, ask how they're doing, say a prayer. Like that is, always a good idea but so th- so that's interesting it's a different context from what you're talking about but it seems like that's a that's something people are often very aware of and wary of they don't want to be burdens to other people yeah yeah they they quote here galatians chapter 6 verse 2 which says bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of christ and they say part of god's design includes a responsibility for one another that in fact the greek word for bear here tells us it's not a one-time thing we could read it as keep carrying keep carrying one another's burdens and that's why they got the title for this here like god in some way calls us to be burdens on other people on each other like that's what it means to be family community church that we don't in the end see each other's stuff as burdens but that we are called to take on more than just our own stuff. We're called to take on other people's problems and help people, even if it adds to our stress level. What do you think about even how they, how they talk about, you know what, part of being a Christian and in community is to help carry one another's burdens. Yeah, I think this is interesting, especially how individualistic we are in the American church that we tend to think the like um the right more godly thing is to continue in our isolation right uh mm-hmm. mm, i don't need anybody i don't want to overwhelm someone with my issues i don't want to have to quote unquote like this article saying burden them with me asking for help so it it's interesting how we've lost um that communal aspect of uh, the Christian faith and even just the church where like, I almost feel like maybe I'm, maybe I'm looking at the past through rose colored glasses, but like, I feel like in the good old days of the church, right? The moment somebody's in need, the whole church is rushing over with 
overwhelming number of casseroles and phone calls and visits and, you know, probably to the point where it's like, okay, this is too much, but you want to be loved like that. You know what I mean? Rather than isolation. And I think we have to be vulnerable enough. And I think that's why it's risky because it does take vulnerability and courage yeah. to be like, look, I, I need something from you. Like I need time with you or I need you to pray for me or I'm really hurting right now. Can you help me? Can I just get coffee with you because I feel alone? Like that's scary. And I think that's why it's hard because you're putting yourself out there. And what if you get rejected? You know, so there's a lot, sort of a lot at stake here, but it's interesting to me that this author of the gospel coalition, Christine Gordon and Hope Blanton are saying like, no, this is actually biblical. Like we're supposed to do do that. Yeah. So they say the reasons we do this is because we're afraid we'll overwhelm people, but also something you just touched on. We're embarrassed to be vulnerable, like to admit that we're struggling. They go on to say why we must share burdens. We are created to be interdependent. We're not Mm -hmm. created to be alone uh, and we're commanded to love one another. And so uh, let me ask you this. They go on to give a, um, some ways to do this. Okay. And the one here is fascinating to me. Next time someone you trust asks how you're doing, tell them. <laughs> like, first step. Next time someone you trust, not the person who. You who's, don't have to do it to the average, just like the person walking down the street. Oh, yeah. yo, who's like, how you doing? Good. You know, we're going on our way. Right. But next time somebody that's your friend, that's your close, you yeah. trust them. Yeah. Next time, because that's where we often make that choice right away. We go, I don't want to burden them, but he, mm-hmm. I, I, this is so simplistic, but so difficult. Next yeah. time somebody asks you how you're doing, actually tell them, why is that such a huge deal? You know, I think why it's a huge deal. I'm just going to give you an anecdote from my life. Kevin and I meet with a renewal community, what basically what we call our small groups at our church every Sunday. And um, our particular group, I've talked about this on the show before, are uh, many in the group are sort of deconstructing their faith and trying to find Jesus in the middle of it. So a few months ago, we were kind of going around the room checking in. And one person in our group, I won't share any details, but said, uh, yeah, I'm doing fine. We're taking it one day at a time and then moved on. And then like maybe an hour later, this person said, you know what? Can I revisit something? Earlier, mm. everyone asked me how I was doing. And I'm just now realizing I did what I always do, which is head down, bootstraps up. We're fine. And he was like, I realized that was a moment when I should have just said, here's actually how we're doing. And then he proceeded to go into how he was actually doing. And we were all like, thank you so much. But it was this moment where like, it's, I mean, this is going to sound extreme, but it's almost like a choice to be human with other humans or pretend like you're not a human and you have no limits and you're fine. Yeah, yeah. And I think what that moment did for all of us was increase it, increase trust in our group, helped us carry this particular person's burdens, help the rest of us feel more and more safe to share our burdens and unity is formed in that way. And I think we talk so much about the value of unity in the church and the value of community and authenticity in the church. So for one person to do like the brave thing and say, this is how I'm actually doing. I'm not going to give the rote answer I always give, but I'm going to, and again, like you said, safe group. We, we've been meeting together as a group for like two and a half years now. So there's safety there. It's not like we're randos in this person's life, but that shifted the dynamic. And I think brought us all deeper with one another and even before God in a way that we weren't 
before that kind of acknowledgement. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And this is hard as pastors, like to know where oh. it's, re- where it's respond, but where it's, where need, we can do that is, but there is, need to be people who, when they ask you, yeah. uh, pastor or not pastor, how are you doing where you have that moment of going, I could actually tell them, maybe I should actually tell them and then go about yeah. telling them, yeah. understanding that they ask you, they want to know. Uh, this article ends this way. Bearing, uh, burden bearing draws us together and grows our love. It's one of the many ways Jesus grows his church. Find ways to share your burdens and carry the burdens of others and so fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, I think this is something difficult to think about. We talk about community and family. Uh, kind of put your money where your mouth is, I suppose. So, all right, Aubrey. Good stuff. Speaking of being vulnerable, I am going to share something. Oh. Uh, that may surprise people, something that not only do I struggle with, but I don't really know how to uh, to get past this. You and I are going to talk about, uh, yeah, come back, because I think what I'm going to share, a lot of you church people are going to agree. We're going to do this next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. On a beautiful uh, Friday afternoon, the weekend is upon us, and we're hopefully uh, that you have some big plans ahead of you. If you've missed any of our shows this week, go get the podcast wherever it is. Get your podcast, subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com. And Aubrey, we've been doing some um, connection with Decision Point, a wonderful ministry out there. Decision Point is that is equipping high school and junior high students to take the gospel of Jesus Christ back into their public schools. Uh, they do just the craziest stuff. These kids, it's they, so awesome. They, I, I've sh- like, go ahead, Brian. No, I've shared on the show that I was terrified as a high schooler to go to see you at the poll, and these <laughs> kids are running like clubs and they're running big outreach events that hundreds of other students are coming to. They're sharing their testimonies and decision point is equipping them to do that. And we here at the common good and on AM 1160 want to support decision point. So to do that, just go to our website, 1160hope.com. There you will see the decision point banner and uh, just click on it. And there you can support their ministry, which is really doing great work. Like we wouldn't bring people on here. Yeah. That we didn't believe in. And we do believe in the work they're doing. All right, Aubrey, I teased before the break that I'm going to share something that might not make me, it might make me a bad pastor. It might even just make me a bad Christian. Are you ready for this? Yes. People are leaning in. Anytime you say you're a bad Christian, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) You're in. Uh, Increasingly, and I'll share the background story. It was last week, uh, something that I was a part of at our church. I find group pray out loud prayer time to be very difficult. Okay, unpack that. I'm trying not to laugh, but I, I think I understand where you're going, but unpack it. So this is a me problem. I am not saying that we shouldn't be doing group yes, prayer yes. time. Obviously, you're not saying that. I'm saying that I spend, oh my gosh, I'm going to sound like the worst Christian here in the world. I spend a lot of my time critiquing the prayers of other people. Oh, no, Brian. Okay, I, no, this in, is my bed, in my head, in this my is head. Honest. This is honest. This is honest. I do I truthfully, do I do truthfully spend a lot of time going, I'm a pastor or if it's at church, I'm the pastor. So I better pray, you know, with some. Mm. in a certain way like there's a little bit of that like going on so pharisaical of you 
I find attention being difficult in my head these days. Like, yeah, that's true. So we did a prayer thing at our church, like in this small group. It's this whole program we've been doing called Rooted, and it was great. And last Sunday, it was all about prayer. And so there was a big portion of it that was like group prayer. Yeah. And then there was a big portion of it that was like, go off and read these passages and pray alone. Okay. I so much prefer the go off and pray alone. alone. I really do. Like in my mind, when it's group prayer, I'm also like, Who's going to start? Who's going to finish? Oh, like, oh my gosh, how, how much longer are they going to let this just sit with nobody saying anything? I, it's terrible. I'm, I'm admitting to being a terrible person no, you're here. Not. I think this is probably what a lot of people feel in group. But group. then when we went off with our Bibles to pray and journal, it was that. like just the sweetest time. Aww. I'm reading God's word. Aww. I'm praying. And then we gather again and we're praying as a group and all of those same things come back. I don't know, Aubrey. I don't do well in church, but also out of church, like in pastor groups or whatever else it might be. I don't know what's going on in my head. I don't know why this is. I think so many people feel that way. And you almost have to normalize like this will be awkward for some people. This is going to be painful. You're going to watch the clock and you're going to be like, how much longer will this go on? Just like, that's okay. Just keep bringing your heart and mind back to God. You know what's so funny about this? My husband, Kevin, is so good at awkward silences. He always has been. So in any small group we've ever been in together, anytime we're leading a prayer group, some some moment like this, I'm literally the one like nudging him, <laughs> him, like put, you know, like pushing on his thigh, like pray, pray. And he just will like swap my hand away because he's like, you have to give, there are some people, it takes them a little longer to dive in and you have to give them time to say something. But I feel that that sort of awkward silent moment is so hard for me in group prayer. You know what else is, this is really hard for me in group prayer. We'll pray once a month, our uh, leadership council, the whole church is invited. This is like a new initiative we're doing. And uh, our the guy who's leading it is incredible, incredible prayer warrior. But he has us divide into groups within the room. So let's say there's 10 of us there. There's two or three people in groups praying different things. All I'm doing, it's like FOMO. Like I'm paying attention to what they're praying in that group over there. And so I can't be present <laughs> in my little pod. You know what I mean? So I would so much rather like, no, I want us all to pray together because I want to know what that person's praying. What are they saying? And I, it's weird. Like I, I get in my head too, but in a, in a very different way. But I think a lot of people feel that way. It's easier to, well, if you pray, in one sense, it's easier to pray on your own because you're not so worried about what other people think or what other people are saying or the time or the awkward silences or the, um, so, so the question then is why? Why do we do group prayer? Because I do think that there is value in group prayer, right? Yeah. Like. Uh, you know, the, the apostles at the book in the or beginning of the book of Acts are gathered together right, in right. a room praying. Right. Where two um, are more or gathered. Are like, gathered. There, a lot. Right. I don't think the answer is to get rid of group prayer. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to ask, what does it, ah, why? 
Why do we have these? Why do our minds go in many different places? Why am I judging people's prayers? Why am I critiquing my own prayers? Why am I like, oh, that sounded dumb. Man, I'm not sure I agree with what they said. I'm not sure about this. Like, I felt guilty. I really did. I'm like, I'm the freaking pastor. And I'm thinking, I'm just in a bad spot. And then I'm having this sweet prayer time on my own. It was just a really weird experience for me. And quite frankly, the more I look back, the more I go, I think it's always been this way for me. Yeah, like, that's, I think it's it's. it's I don't think it's a pastor thing for me. I think it's a. Um, I don't know. I just think. Well, it's and a don't thing. you don't you think too? I mean, I don't. It's funny. Like I'm about to say, I don't want to over spiritualize, but maybe I do want to s- simply spiritualize prayer. Like, don't you think the enemies at work trying to say this isn't valuable? Don't do this. Let me distract you in any way I can. And so every single one of us have our own versions of whatever you're saying. Like, it may not be that you're judging other people's prayer, but you're judging your own prayer or you feel nervous or you're bored out of your mind, but you know, you quote unquote should be there. Or like me, you have FOMO, like what are the people praying about? And I, I even get, I, I don't necessarily get judgy, but I get compare Like I'm like, oh, that person's a real good prayer. <laughs> <laughs> they, got it. they did it. I do. I get, I find my mind wandering. It's just a weird deal. I almost feel that- like it would be helpful in group prayer times to just name it beforehand. Look, we're all going to have weird hangups here. Yeah. Let's, let's invite God to show up anyway and just acknowledge it and laugh at ourselves. And like in our limitedness and in our very human nature, God still invites us to come before him together. And I think the answer to this is to keep praying in groups. Yeah, I think so, too. I think it's to push through. Because yeah. don't get me wrong, people. I believe fully in the power of prayer. Like I'm a I'm a prayer. Pr- I like prayer. I believe in it. <laughs> I preach on it. I pray. But there's something about the evangelical church group prayer dynamic where yeah. I've got some baggage. I don't know if that baggage goes to when I'm younger or goes yeah. to college or where it is along the way. But, man, I, I, I brought that up because I, I, I hope you're right that other people feel that way. I, I think they have their own version of what you're saying. It may not be exactly that, but definitely people feel that way. I bet there's a you're right, though. I wonder why the baggage exists for so many of us. Like, it, it, maybe group prayer has been a competition in the past, like amongst evangelicals who can pray better, who can pray with more faith, who can pray with more, you know, drama, reference scripture more. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe in that in that sense, we've kind of messed it up and therefore it's goofy for all of us. But I think you're right. The answer is to keep keep doing it and watch how God shows up, even in our frailty. It's also another example of, you know, when you want to process the deep, you know, deficiencies in your life, do it on a big radio station in a major radio. market. Yeah, do, <laughs> yeah, Give yourself a microphone and put it on the air. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely true. Well, coming up next, saw a fascinating tweet about uh, the thief on the cross. I've never Mm. spent much time thinking about the thief on the cross, but let me read you this tweet coming up next, and then we're going to discuss it here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. It's really good to be with you on a Friday. If you've missed any of the show including me confessing my struggle with big group prayer. That's just going to leave it at that. If you want to hear that explanation, go get the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're one of my elders, because you might fire me. But other than that, (laughs) uh, go get the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com. All right, Aubrey, I saw a fascinating tweet from a guy by the name of John Moreland. 
about the thief on the cross. I haven't given, have you given much time to, have you ever preached about the thief on the cross or thought much, written an article? I'm trying to think if I have. I feel like I've certainly, like, thought about and probably mentioned here and there that you know the thief on the cross especially the one who who turned to jesus right in the in the last kind of in his final hour and i think a lot of people use that as like look it doesn't matter where in life you come to christ as long as you come to christ so i think in that sense i have but not beyond that yeah yeah well let me read to you this tweet uh this quote um that he has here because i find it challenging and i want to unpack it with you he says this how does the thief on the cross fit into your theology no baptism no communion no confirmation no speaking in tongues no mission trip no volunteerism and no Mm -hmm. church clothes he couldn't even bend his knees to pray he didn't say the sinner's prayer and among other things he was a thief Mm -hmm. jesus didn't take away his pain heal his body or smite the scoffers. Yet it was a thief who walked into heaven the same hour as Jesus simply by believing he had nothing more to offer other than his belief that Jesus was who he said he was no spin from brilliant theologians, no ego or arrogance, no shiny light, skinny jeans or crafty words, no haze machines, donuts or coffee in the entrance, (laughs) just a naked dying man on a cross, unable to even fold his hands Mm. to pray. Wow. Wow. What do you think? Beautiful. Why are you saying wow? What what's it, what you got on that one? Well, I you know, I think ultimately what this speaks of, and this is what the entire Bible speaks to. So this should be firm in our theology that our relationship with God and God's grace has never been dependent on us. Mm. So it, it just never has. Like God's covenant relationship with the Israelite people all throughout the Old Testament is thankfully never dependent on them because they just had cycles of apostasy again and again and again and again and again and again. And yet God continued to be faithful. And so it is with Jesus. It really isn't. I mean, I think this is so beautiful. Like it is not about the right prayer, the right words, the right sacraments, the right. Now those are meaningful things and, and a part of our spiritual formation. And so I don't think you have to say one over the other, but at the end of the day, the salvation work belongs to Jesus, not to mm. us. And and the thief is the perfect example of this, right? Yeah. He he turned to Jesus, believed, and that was it, right? And again, that was like um that was all it took and all that all that was necessary because the work wasn't his. The work was Jesus right there on the cross. Yeah. And, and that's what becomes difficult because we want to be careful not to say none of the other things matter. But at right. the same time, uh, we don't want to um, how to put this. We don't want to add other things onto what salvation is. Yeah. And and I think that's what uh, is what's really impressive here or important is to say, OK, the thief on the cross in that last moment, this was a bad person. This person did things that was worthy of execution. Yeah. Right. Like many yeah. people think that the word that, that the uh, projection of a thief on the cross, that he was actually a better word would be terrorist on the mm. cross, like oh, wow. that bad of a person, but yet cried out to Jesus at the end, believed who Jesus said he was. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise what I want to be careful not to do here is to make people's takeaway be then, oh, then none of the other stuff matters. Yeah. I don't need to go to church. I could just cry out to right. Jesus at the last minute. Right. Uh, 
No, that's not it either. But it does remind us, like you said, that the work is Jesus's and Jesus alone. Yeah. And I think why this matters, right, is that we tend like on two sides. Okay. For the church leader side, like he's talking a little bit about no shiny light, skinny jeans, crafty words, haze. That felt unfair. That was a little bit unfair. We can, I like to actually come back to that. But I think what he's saying is, um, even those of us who are in church leadership and are passionate about creating a welcoming culture for people at the end of the day, like the power and the, the, the saving power still belongs to Jesus. Right. And it's ultimately not our strength, not our efforts, but it's God's. And then I think on the other hand, for those of us who are recipients of faith, we can all get into that same old habit of trying to save ourselves, trying to achieve, trying to earn, trying. It's so hard not to do that. Right. But I think this is ultimately the reminder that like, even at our worst, even at our lowest, even at our most sinful, the work has been done by Jesus. Mm. And therefore all it takes is to turn to him. And I think we can remember that like, we don't, we have not earned it. We don't have to, we just can surrender in awe and worship. But I do want to go back to, cause I do think this is a little unfair to say, um, uh, no, no shiny lights, no skinny jeans, no crafty words, no haze machines. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And yet what we know is that God does partner with people and we know that mm. God's, um, God's goal has been that the church is the expression of his glory. And so though these things might seem silly to some people, donuts, coffee, what we're trying to do is create an environment along with the Holy Spirit that invites and welcomes people in. And so I sometimes do get a little frustrated when people sort of, quote unquote, attack the attractional church or the whatever, whatever language you want to use, the growth model church. Um, because at the end of the day, we don't want a repulsive church. Like we want a church that welcomes people in. And so I don't think it again, I don't think it has to be this over that like. Hey, if your church does shiny light, skinny jeans and crafty words, and that's bringing people to Jesus, amen. If your church mm. doesn't do that and that's bringing people to Jesus, amen. The saving power is still Jesus's. The glory is still his alone. The work is still his alone. But it doesn't mean we don't make uh, contextually meaningful efforts to make people feel welcomed into the kingdom of God, into yeah. the family of God, into a church situation. Am I overthinking that part? No, Brian? no, I think you're right. That part of the tweet felt loaded and uh, unfair to me. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad that you did. But I think ultimately it's a reminder. Remember, we played this months ago, Alistair Begg talking about the thief on the cross, where he said, uh, it was so phenomenal. YouTube it if you're out there about Alistair Begg, a uh, thief on the cross. He said, uh, he put, he was projecting what the thief on the cross said when he got into heaven. And he basically was like, I don't know anything. I don't know any of this. The guy on the middle cross said I could come. <laughs> and you're like yeah. the imagery there of mm-hmm. it is by grace. You have been saved, not yeah. by works so that nobody can boast. And that the thief on the cross, while an outlier, right, yep. is is a perfect picture of that. That yeah. it is by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that nobody can boast. Amen. Um, we see that in the thief on the cross, and that should hopefully give some of you hope out there who have been praying for a family member for years and years and years as well, um, hoping that they will come to Christ. Like God is at work even up until those last moments, and we can uh, hold on to that. Well, good, Brian. 
Glad you're with us on this Friday afternoon. Uh, Jesus, we're going to talk about this next. Jesus never hesitated to enter into fellowship to those who were deemed unworthy. What can we learn from that? We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. to Jesus Fellowship with and how can we do the same? And later, it's Friday. You know what that means. A top five list. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Friday evening. Hopefully, you have a wonderful weekend planned. We're so glad that you're with us. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. If you've missed any of today's show, we'd love to invite you to go back and catch up on our podcast wherever it is you listen to your podcast. And we love engaging with you on social media. We are at Common Good Talk on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Brian, this is a very random question, but I wonder, like, it's getting fall. The weather's changing. Uh, do you have Halloween costume in mind for the year, not. or are you not a Halloween costume guy? So I'm not. I, I would get dressed up with my kids when they were little to go trick-or-treating, but now they're off with friends doing yeah. that. I will happily sit in my house Pass on Halloween. Andy. The weird thing was, this might have been a COVID thing last year, but we had next to no kids. Last. We live in a neighborhood, and we had so few last year. I couldn't oh, figure really? it out. So we'll see if this year's different. Yeah, I But no, I'm not like you. We have established that you put up the Halloween tree and the Halloween turkey, and you hide the Halloween Easter eggs <laughs> we, and all of that stuff. We light the Halloween candle every the menorah, night. <laughs> the Halloween menorah. Yes, we all learn that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm currently doing some research on a Halloween costume. My husband has given me a pretty strict "don't spend any money" budget. So, uh, it's not where do you do? Are you going to a party or what are you doing? I know that's what Kevin said. Are we going to a party? Why do you care? No, it's for the gram. Like we gotta have a cute costume you picture for Instagram. Kidding? Yes, me. I'm actually totally kidding. No, I just have this. I have this cute idea that I want Kevin to do with me just for like. Our coupledom and our cuteness, and he's not that excited about it. So can we know? I'll, can I know what that is? I'll tell you later. We'll see if it works out. I, I, I I'll keep you informed. But I'm I'm working right now on a cheap, cutesy, coupley costume to improve our marriage. Okay. <laughs> but my to husband, improve our marriage, no no my pressure. Husband does not agree with with that sentiment. Okay. Well, uh, there's really no way to transition from Halloween cute costumes to this, but I want to talk about. A tweet that our friend Ray Chang, uh, who used to be at Wheaton College, he's recently moved to Fuller, I believe. Okay. But he, he posted something on Twitter um, that said this. Talking about Jesus, Jesus never hesitated to enter into fellowship with those who were deemed to be defiled in the eyes of the religious elite. Hmm. He went towards all types of people who were deemed as wicked and filthy, unclean and impure. Now, I'm, I'm going to stop there because I think that would have been like, yes, amen. But then Ray asks a follow-up question that I found pretty convicting. How much does this define the church today? Hmm. Uh, tell me your thoughts on that, Brian. Yeah, we hear this message a lot, right? We've all preached this message a yep. lot. And it is, uh, it's, it's blatantly true that when you read the scriptures, Jesus was drawn to the least of these. Jesus... Uh, he, he bound up the broken, right? He reached out to the least of these. He was here for the least and the lost. All of this. Uh, and so the really struggle of this is, are we doing likewise? Obviously yeah. not. But do we, 
I've begun trying to speak much more of our Christian lives as a trajectory, right? Like, because a lot of times if the question is, do we do this? I end up going, no, or kind of, or <laughs> I, I guess I want to ask. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think the answer to this is probably still no on a grand scale, but is the trajectory of my life, is the trajectory of our churches towards the least and the lost, towards the hurting like Jesus did? Yeah. Are we growing in this? Are we increasingly going in that direction. Uh, I think that becomes more helpful because a lot of times they're just kind of guilt. Like, are you doing this? Nope. nope. <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah, we know that this is maybe at the top of the list of things we know about Jesus, but don't do well is probably yeah. right. Yeah. That could be a top five list on some Friday. Couldn't it? Um, you know, one of the things that I feel like I'm kind of more and more consistently convicted about is related to this Jesus's parable of the uh, Good Samaritan, right? And mm -hmm. just, I, I do think about how often I'm very busy doing church business, preparing for a message, meeting with a team at our church. I mean, literally doing church work, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And those are good things. Like we, we talked about um, group prayer earlier. Like those are all good things. We're, we're meant to gather together as the church. And so it's, understandable that we care about these things. But I do wonder sometimes if I'm so busy doing the quote unquote religious things that I am missing the who Raymond's calling us to remember those who are not the religious elite. Yeah. And I, you know, I think you're right, Brian. I think a, a question, cause you're right. It could just be a condemning question where you're like, yep, nope, we're not doing great. The end. But if we do ask is our church increasingly growing this? Are, are we aware? Are we, what efforts are we making? I do think that's a, that's a more helpful way to consider. Uh, the interesting thing to me is he's talking about the eyes of the religious elite here. And so mm. in the Bible, like we would think about that as the Pharisees, right? Like the, they would not associate, they would put their kind of distance from people who were considered wicked and filthy and unclean and impure. I think like ideally the whole church in, in one sense is made up of wicked, filthy and clean and impure made clean by Jesus. And mm. so, um, I, I don't know exactly the point I'm trying to make here, but ideally this isn't like even an effort we're having to make or like, yeah. a, like a, a, like a outreach project, but like our church is full of, of people who are sinners uh, saved by grace. And I think maybe that's another question too. Like, are we a church? Are we a church for the sick or the healthy? Really? Mm, yeah. Your thoughts about that? Uh, it's, it is, it, I, this cannot only be a top down thing, right? Yeah, like, um, yeah. it just can't. And that's, yeah, that's hard. This is one of these guilt ones and, and guilt is not always a bad thing. Um, sometimes what, right. The Christian word for that is conviction. And so, <laughs> You know, you feel convicted by this because, yeah, I don't do this well. My life is not spent going, huh, you know, who are the wicked and the filthy, the all types of people, the yeah, unclean and the impure right, right. around me right now? And what am I doing about that? I'm, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what does our church do? We do do things, right? We all do yeah. outreach. We all do of stuff. Course. But but am I doing this on our? No, no. And so the question becomes, do you just then push this conversation away and just go, well, mm. nope, I'm going to be a little more Pharisee than Jesus on this one. Mm. Or do we go, okay, what are steps? Again, I'll go back to trajectory towards, towards 
orienting my life in such a way yeah. uh, that maybe I could start to get this right a little bit yeah. more. And perhaps there's even like an invitation um, to search your own soul and your church's soul as a community. Like who are the people we sort of deem as the untouchable or like the, they're not welcome here or whatever. You're not going to say that obviously any good church is not going to say that, but just in your posturing in your language, in your point of view, like, are there certain members of tribes or affiliations politically, socially, culturally that you kind of go, oh, if that person walked into our church, like, I don't know that they'd break into the cliques that are here yeah. because they're not in the right echo chamber or whatever. I think maybe that's a place to even start. Like, that's let's a good just, one. Let's search and identify Ask the Lord for forgiveness and then and then ask God to help us be a place where all people are welcome, whatever their background, whatever their point of view, whatever we even if we deem them as, you know, filthy, unclean, whatever. How can the Lord change us so that the church becomes a a place of welcome? Anyway, kind of one of those convicting questions for all of us. Let me read it again from Ray Chamond. Raymond Chang. Excuse me. I was like, why did that sound wrong? (laughs) Raymond Chang. I speak for a living. Jesus never hesitated to enter into fellowship with those who were deemed to be defiled in the eyes of the religious elite. He went towards all people who were deemed as wicked and filthy, unclean and impure. How much does this define the church today? All right. Coming up next, Brian, are American Christians on the path to severe persecution for their faith? We're going to talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. So glad that you are with us today. Brian, one of the things that we've been uh, talking about here and there on the show is the idea of persecution mm-hmm. in America for Christians. And um, there was a question asked recently at Religion News, which was this, are American Christians on the path to severe persecution for their faith? And I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I let me say what I think. And I, I because you and I have talked about this, I think I know where you land. I think you and I would say wholeheartedly that there is more and more pushback against Christianity, mm-hmm. um, more and Fair. more, uh, especially in, in we're seeing it in pop culture. We're seeing it in culture wars. Like there's definitely a more anti-Christian sentiment out there in the world. A lot of discrimination. Against it's much Christians. less. Yeah. It's much less like the uh we are uh, we are christian everyone's kind of favorable of christianity whether you're in the church or not i would say it's much more kind of relegated to the outside now but i think you are 100% right to say don't me- don't mesh that with persecution going on around the world right. where people are dying for their faith they're being separated from their families they're yes. being ostracized like that's persecution and I, we don't want to cheapen the word persecution and i think that's why we talk so much about this we don't want to it cheapens it to say, oh, you know, if they push back on our faith a little bit, we're being persecuted. No, right, you're being right. resisted. Uh, let's save the word persecution for those who are facing actual life and death persecution. 
Yeah, and that's essentially, Brian, what Religion News is saying. There's a guy named David Curry who who is writing about this, are Christians on the path to severe persecution for their faith. And he acknowledges that, yes, like there is an increased religious intolerance that is only going to hit closer to home. He acknowledges that there's a lot of discrimination against Christians in the U.S. today, uh, including 50 percent or 57 percent of white evangelical Protestants say that they experience that. But then he goes on to say essentially what you just said. Still, we enjoy broad religious protections under the law and the intensity of what Christians face here pales in comparison to the depths of persecution by followers of Jesus, like around the world. He talks about Afghanistan, which was recently ranked number one on Open Doors USA World Watch List. Uh, that's the number one country where it's most difficult to be a Christian. And while, you know, a college student at a, a Christian college student at a secular university might experience some ridicule for their faith, that's different than, uh, you know, a life being destroyed for faith, right? Or a family being ripped apart for faith. What, Brian, I, what I don't want to do here is undermine um, the ridicule that some Christians experience for their faith. I don't want to undermine the um, experiences of discrimination or uh, feeling like, you know, uh, you're be yeah, you're being discriminated because of your faith in the workplace or at school or what have you. And yet I do think it's important for us not to assume that's persecution, but why? Like, I think I'm asking myself, why is this kind of a hang up for me? I think part of it is I just want to honor those who've actually died for their faith. Um, and I don't want, I don't want us to be afraid, but I also don't want us to be naive. So help me with the balance here, Brian. What, what's the, what's the right way to kind of think about this? I just think it's really an important uh, differentiation to make because we have this persecution complex in the evangelical church now because a generation ago, certainly two generations ago, we kind of had favored status, right? We've talked about this. The plumber who put the fish on the back of his van got more business. Mm -hmm. And um, now we've, we've confused favored status mm -hmm. where it's a benefit to be a Christian to your business, to your whatever, uh, versus being kind of ostracized. And, and again, it cheapens the actual persecution going on around the world. While not, uh, we also, I think you make a good corrective. We don't want to say it doesn't matter. It does. Yeah. And yeah. life is really hard for a lot of you out there trying to live out your faith as a Christian. So we are parsing words a little bit about there, but, uh, I would also say this. I think this is only going to increase. I think we see this on a year after year basis. This, uh, our culture pushing back against the faith, yeah. I think, is only going to become more and more. Yeah. And in one sense, I, I think you're right about that, Brian. And if that's true, then we we actually have a lot to learn from those in other countries who have gone through actual persecution and yet remained faithful. I mean, I, I think maybe these are instances for us to like look to these folks as great heroes of the faith. They've been mm -hmm. tortured in prison, separated from their families for their faith and just be like, okay, if you're holding on to Jesus, how can I continue to stay faithful to God in the midst of what we're experiencing here in the States? And then I think also these opportunities when we feel ostracized socially or, or maybe aren't experiencing the, like you said, the increase in business or what have you, um, those are moments for us to pray for the persecuted church. Like I think That's these are moments point. to go to open doors, go to their website, read the, 
read the stories of the children that have been separated from their moms and dads, read the story of the lives lost, read the stories of the countries and the devastation they're experiencing for their faith and pray for them. Like, so maybe this is an invitation to remember that we're part of a global faith that is suffering in a way that we can't even imagine. And we can join with them in, in these little ways when we experience our own sort of pushback. Here's how David Curry ends this article. He, by the way, is the president of CEO and CEO of Open Doors. So he's obviously advocating for the persecuted church. But he says this, in America, we're blessed with incredible amounts of freedom. We can attend church, pray, meet with fellow believers and read the Bible whenever we want without legal consequence. But many millions of our brothers and sisters around the world simply cannot do those same things without facing repercussions, often dire. He goes on to say, we should be wise as serpents as the gospel of Matthew Mm -hmm. counsels when it comes to monitoring domestic trends around religious freedom. The liberties we enjoy should be defended at all costs. I think that's key there. But then he says, but we must also invest the resources we have where the needs are so much greater to defend those around the globe who risk life and livelihood simply for confessing the name of Jesus. I feel like that's a good, I mean, if there's such thing as balance in this conversation, that feels like the right balance. Let's be wise as serpents. Let's pay attention to trends around religious freedom. We'll continue talking about those stories here on the common good. Let's uh, fight for the liberties that we're allowed to have but yeah. then let's also remember that the greater global Christian population of people who are actually suffering and pray like you. I think pray. you told us earlier, as we hear stories, even of pushback of criticism, as you're criticized for your faith, as you read things on open door or wherever else, uh, actually go to prayer, get on your knees and say, Lord, for the Good. for the Christians in Afghanistan, Lord, for those facing, you know, persecution by the Taliban, for those in Nigeria, Lord. Will you protect them? Will you embolden them? I think we have a burden and a privilege to be praying for the church around the world. Yeah, such a good final word for all of us, Brian. Thank you for that. All right, coming up next, it's Friday. We're going to take a little 180, do some very uh, fun things. That is a top five list. I cannot wait to tell the people about this one because it's a really good (laughs) one. Uh, Be sure to stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And it's Friday. On Friday, we have one of our very favorite things, and that is our top five list. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. All right. You heard that theme song, Brian. So that means we are doing a top five list. I am very excited about this one. You actually came up with it. So do you want to tell the people what this one is? Yep, we talk a lot about TV shows in here. We do a lot of 80s stuff. We go back to our childhood. We said, what are the top five theme songs from television? Only television. Yeah. Top five theme songs that just stick in your head. When you hear it, you could go back and you could sing it. It's as if you just watched the show yesterday. Aubrey, you and I were commenting off air. Most of these are early 90s and sooner because nowadays most theme songs don't have words to them if you think most about TV, like the office or it's true they, they're TV just theme songs yep 
sounds, right? They're just songs without lyrics. So these are these make me feel old when I when I look at my list. But I think a lot of a lot of our listeners will know these songs. My list is so long of honorable mentions. This was very hard to narrow down. I don't even know if I if I've still gotten it right. But I'll start with my number five. Okay. Okay. This is actually a blast from the past, from childhood. But I bet everybody can sing it. Uh, This is the Sesame Street theme song. Mm. Sunny uh, day sweeping the clouds away. Like I still, I still know it. I can see it all from top to bottom. That is uh, very true. That is very yep. true. My number five, also a blast from our past. And I mentioned this on a past show. It's a random cartoon that I watched as a kid and it is burned <laughs> into my mind. It is the gummy bears. The gummy bears. Give us a little, give us a little sample there, Brian. Gummy bears <laughs> bouncing here and there and everywhere. I'd mentioned that's beyond compare. Yeah. They just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I feel like I can remember that one too. Okay. This is another, okay, this is very old school, but I, I feel like I just need to say, I watched the show on Nick at night in reruns. So oh. I wasn't like, I, I wasn't like at the right age when the show came out. Cause I think it came out in 1975, but I loved this show as a kid. That is welcome back Cotter. And I love, love the welcome back Cotter theme song. Welcome back. Your dreams. Oh yes. Yes. That's such a good song. Okay. So that's All right. welcome back Cotter is my next one. My number four, I went into the Wayback Machine. Maybe not as, maybe not, maybe, maybe it is as soon as that one. Maybe just a little bit after. I went uh, to Happy Days. Oh, yeah, that's a solid one. You know, all the Sunday, happy Monday, days. Happy, happy Days. days. Tuesday, Wednesday, Happy, happy Days. days. Wow. <laughs> I love that one. I, for a very long time, I thought Happy Days was actually like made in the 50s, but it wasn't. No, it is of this, the 50s. Yes, this, I, I felt very like, mind blown a little bit when I learned that information. Um, okay. Wow. I'm really, I'm trying to debate here what my, what my next one is. Cause the next ones are like tied for me as far as maybe I'll try to go like old, oldest and up. So I feel like this has got to be on everybody's list, at least of a certain age. And again, I still wasn't the right age, but for some reason I was watching the show and I knew the theme song cheers. Yes. Like everybody where everybody knows like everybody knows that song, right? Where everybody knows your name. Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah. Where everybody knows uh, that song. Yep. Uh yes, I think you have to have that. Okay. Okay. Well, my number three. All right. My number three. Just sit back right back and you'll hear a tale. A tale <laughs> of a fateful trip. That started from the uh, Gilligan's Island. I forgot about Gilligan's Island. But I'll bet yeah. you could sing it right now. I'll bet you could yeah, sing it. Gilligan's Isle. <laughs> Faithful ship that started at the something. No, I can't sing it all. <laughs> Aboard that tiny ship. ship. Yeah, I know. The mate ship was a mighty sailing man. The skipper brave and sure. <laughs> yes, we can keep going. <laughs> and Ginger, the skipper. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Okay, good. All right, I'm gonna. Am I on number three? Or am I you on number are two? on number two. I'm on number. Yes, two. you're on number okay. two. I'm gonna bring us like a little bit closer to home now, and I got. I'm gonna go friends. Like that song by the Rembrandts mm-hmm. is like you know you hear those, and like that's it. You know the Friends theme song. Your love life. Uh, absolutely. Away. Absolutely. The uh, the Rembrandt. So, all right. I am not going to surprise you with number two. 
Okay. okay. But not only is it one of my favorite shows from my childhood, it is a wonderful theme song. And I'm going back to the Wonder Years. Oh, of course you're going back to the Wonder Years. Have a little yeah. help for my friends. Oh, yes, the Wonder song. Years. And it's, I think it's like Joe Cocker's version. And it's so strong. I don't know. Yeah. yeah so okay. good. It's so good. All right. It's okay. for our long list of honorable Long mentions. list of honorable mentions. Yes. Okay. You can I go first. A, go ahead. I have a feeling one of my honorable mentions might be your number one. I might be wrong. Uh, I'm going to go Fresh Prince, a Bel Air theme song. I'm going to okay. go The Muppet Show theme song. Mm. I'm going to go The Monkees from my childhood. I remember that one. <laughs> I, no, do. I can't remember I an do. episode, but I remember that song. Hey, uh, the monkeys. Yes. And then here's another one that I lit- I don't know if I've ever even seen the show, but I know the theme song, and that's Mr. Ed. Do you remember? <laughs> of course, it's a horse. Of course, of course. You'll never a horse. Of course. Like, why that's do good. I know that? Why do I know that? I but I know it. It's in my, it's I in don't my know. subconscious somewhere. Yep. Okay. So, all right. Uh, my honorable mention list is longer than my regular list. Let's so let's just it. run down a few. I had okay. friends on my honorable mention list, like you had on your yep. regular list. Uh, family ties. Oh, uh, right. So this next one, I used to, uh, my memory of this is I had a Dukes of Hazard guitar and would sit in front of the TV when the Dukes of Hazard came on and I would I, sing the Dukes of Hazard song. I meant Hazzard to add song. Dukes of Hazard to my, that's just a good, a good old, old boy. boy. Yes, yeah. yes, Ooh, yes. That's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go some cartoons here. Uh, I went, uh, well, one more non-cartoon. That'd be the facts of life. You oh, take the good, you take the bad, you take them take both. The and there you have the facts yeah. of life. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I went Flintstones. Flintstones. Yeah. Memorable. Wow. Yep. Uh, I went, I watched this one every morning for a little bit before I went to school. The Jetsons. Oh, how did that one start? Meet the Jetsons. Meet George Jetson. Jetson. Oh, yeah. His His boy, boy, Elroy. (laughs) Daughter, (laughs) Judy. And then it just goes, Jane, his wife. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. And the last one, this was a very random show, but man, did it have a, uh, a great, um, theme song, Fraggle Rock. (gasps) Oh, I look down a Fraggle Rock. Yeah. How did that one start? Oh, I loved Fraggle Rock. Get your cares away. Worries for another day. Get the music play. Play. Down in Fraggle Rock. Rock. Oh, yeah. And it'd be like, and there's Wembley and. (laughs) Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. I can't remember their names, but yeah. There you go. All right. What's your number one? Okay. Wow. Wow. That was just fun. That was a good blast from the. This has uh, been fun. This has been fun. Okay. This was also one of my favorite shows, which is why I'm throwing it on there, but it's the Gilmore Girls theme song, which it's a song by Carol King. So it was like one of those theme songs that was already a song, sort of like Friends. But I mean, I love the show. And so, of course, I love the song. It's very identifiable Uh, to me. You, for my number one, you correctly identified one of yours that would be my number one. It is the memorable theme song I would suggest for people our age of, of like our generation. And that is the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah, yeah. And I love when you try to rap the Fresh Prince. So could you give our people a little taste? Well, now I feel like you're mocking me. I am. I definitely am. But I want everyone to mock uh, you with Because everyone listening to the radio will know. They'll know. Now, this is a story all about how my life got quick turned upside down. <laughs> <laughs> you are an MC in the making right now. We could go the you. whole way with Will Smith right there, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I love it. All right. Well, those are our top five theme songs that we can sing end to end. 
some good blasts from the past there. If we forgot anything or if there's one that is always stuck in your head, please let us know by going to our social media at Common Good Talk. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All right, Brian, coming up next, we're going to end the show by talking about wild things that rich people buy that poor people don't even know exist. We'll see if you and I recognize any of these when we come back. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian From It's Friday. It's the end of the week. Hopefully, you're going into a very fun weekend. Because of that, at the end of every show, especially the end of Friday's show, we like to do something that will inspire you, encourage you, or put a smile on your face. This one, I hope, just makes you laugh. We're going to talk Or makes about- you feel poor. It might make you feel poor. It's true. It might make you feel poor. This is over at BuzzFeed. People were sharing things that rich people buy that poor people don't even know exist. And it is wild. I'm going to, I'm going to warn you with that. It is wild. Okay. So I, I'll share the first one, Brian. Are, are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay. Really wealthy people have private boarding gates at certain airports, complete with showers, a spa, full bar, lounge, food, a bed, gym, sauna, etc. Total privacy. <laughs> your luggage is scanned and taken through security by a concierge, and you're driven to the plane in a BMW 8 Series. Apparently, these oh, are well. available at LAX, where all the rich people live. Well, when I go to the airport and I'm going to my boarding area, I can buy peanuts. I can buy a trail mix, a magazine, all for cost. Yes. Yeah, so take that. That's true. You could buy bottled water and sometimes a bagel sandwich if you want to. Occasionally. So, maybe there's a McDonald's close by. Yeah, yes. Might be. Maybe even a Starbucks or a Dunkin' Donuts. So that's With a really long that. line. Yes. That. <laughs> all right. Do you want to share another one with us? Number two, everyone knows about mega yachts, but the very rich also enjoy their own trains. What? Or at the very least, private, super luxurious train cars. What? With their budget, it isn't expensive to rent space on freight lines and an engine, assuming they don't own their own. Sometimes even a group of friends will hook their private cars together and motor around a continent having a big party. I've never what? heard of this. Is that accurate? Do we think that's I don't know. true? I don't know. That seems a little far-fetched, but okay, let's believe that is true, because I like to believe that there's some celebrity private train party happening around Europe right now. Okay, here's another one. You can rent celebrities for your private events, not just musicians, but bona fide actors. This super rich guy in Bel Air used to host his kid's birthday party in late October, so they went all out for a Halloween-themed party. Everyone at the kids' school was invited, plus their own friends. Each year, they'd hire some fantastic athlete to appear at the event. One year, it was Tony Hawk. Another year, it was some Olympic gold medal gymnastics winners. The one that threw me was when they hired uh, Demi Moore, Anthony Kiedis, and Benicio Del Toro to be guests at the party to hang out and pretend they were friends with the kids. Well, at our kids' birthday parties, we go to two toots and buy everyone hot dogs. So we went to Chuck E. Cheese, and that's funny. Uh, my, one of my sons, uh, one of the birthday parties for my son when he was little, we just went up to the school and played kickball. <laughs> and that was probably an amazing birthday party, by the way. That's right. All right, next one. Uh, really wealthy people have specialized household staff. When someone is truly mega rich, running their household takes the same complexity as running a small to mid-sized company, and the management is skilled and compensated accordingly. Don't think butler. Think head of operations at a luxury hotel. Wow. They went on to use the example of Larry Ellison. He has his own personal curator to oversee just his collection of art. 
Well, obviously. Wow. Oh, wow. A household manager. I'm, I mow my lawn. So there's that. <laughs> I do. I do my dishes and I, yeah, <laughs> occasionally, you know, I'm, I'm going back to the celebrity birthday party one. Maybe you and I could get a gig where like we show up at kids birthday parties is the common good. Here's some cool radio hosts, kids. That is, that is quite simply the worst birthday party I've heard of right there. That is, I wouldn't even do that to my own kids birthday party. <laughs> yeah. Not even really, close. Really terrible. If, if we were those kids. All right. Here's another one. This is kind of a long one. A while back, this is somebody on BuzzFeed saying this. A while back, some guy on here was talking about his experience working as a sort of personal manager for a billionaire. Now things are just wildly different for them. The specific example he gave was how things work when they want to go on a trip and give any notice at, at they give any notice at all to their employees. What happens is that an advanced team get sent a few days earlier to scope out the location of the trip and report back exact dimensions <laughs> for closet space, drawer space, etc. People back at the house go through the clothing, jewelry, etc. They draw up a priority list. That's sent to the advanced team. The advanced team then spends the next two days purchasing the list of items, entire wardrobes, no. Jewelry sets, makeup kits, bathing supplies, etc. Anything they cannot get, not enough time, or it's one of a kind, like the family heirloom, heirloom, etc., is relayed to the house team. Then they go on to say the family schedule is arranged such that the moment the family leaves the house on the day of travel, a whole team of people rushes through and packs up all of the remaining items only after the family leaves because you wouldn't want to deny them access to their items even for a few seconds, which are then sent ahead of time to the airport while the family has lunch or something somewhere. Upon landing, their luggage takes one route direct and the family takes a similar indirect route unless otherwise directed so that by the time they get to their location, all of their items are unpacked and properly organized. And they've never even seen it happen. Do we think that's, that's true? I, I these people are reporting it. Okay, no, I think yeah. it's probably it's probably true at least to wow. a person. Uh, I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> 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 All right, this next one's creepy. Okay, this next one's creepy. Uh, you could get your pet cloned. My uh-huh. ex boss was getting his dog cloned for a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of that one at all. I'm not a fan of that at all. That's funny. Cloned pets. Uh, You can get access to private banks. Rich people use banks like Chase, but they don't bank through regular branches. They use Chase private banking. They never wait on hold for a banker to pick up the phone. They get same-day access to their deposits, lines of credits. Deposit $3 million into your checking account, and you get a call from your bank's private banking group. I mean, yeah, that makes sense to me. That one doesn't seem over the top. If I had that much money in the bank, I would expect like some personal some personal touches there with yep. the bank. I yeah, would assume so. All right, I'm going to skip down a little, low, a little okay. further. Uh, some rich people are able to get kidnapping insurance. What? This person said, I worked for a place where the CEO was very hands-on and would oftentimes fly to countries that were less than stable to sell the product. In case of kidnapping, we had insurance for him, for anyone else that traveled with him that might get grabbed, and contingency plans in place for what we needed to be doing and who to contact in case that happened. So that's not a good thing. (laughs) That's crazy. No, that's scary. That's actually a little bit sad. Okay, this one may not surprise you, but it's kind of interesting. Rich people can buy actual smart homes. The Alexa Google home market is bringing it more mainstream, but for decades, the wealthy elite have had smartphone functionality, smart home functionality through companies like Creston. 
The controls go far beyond controlling your lights and thermostat. They integrate with more technology. So I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but I have a friend who works in Silicon Valley and had, for some reason, some interaction with Zuckerberg at one point. And of course, you know, he's got a smart home, right? Like, obviously, a guy like him does. Yes. And apparently, somebody told me that when he has guests, the home, like, is set to the guests' sort of favorites, favorite music, favorite lighting. Oh, so funny. Favorite whatever. And so when they show up, the home automatically, like, adjusts adjusts for their needs to make them feel welcome. I don't know if all of that's a lie and an exaggeration, but isn't that interesting? That's wild. That yeah. one's wild. Yeah. Okay, uh, share us one more, and then we'll wrap it on up so the rest of us don't feel bad about ourselves. So this one is absolutely true. In fact, I've heard that artists will actually make more money doing this than regular shows. Uh, the mega rich could get private performances with big name artists. His person says, I was on a yacht in the Virgin Islands and some mega yacht owner close to us had Christina Aguilera flown in to perform for his guest on the mega yacht. Come we on. were close enough to see the performance, but not be part of the party. Uh, you hear about that all the time yeah, where people will that. go to private parties for a million dollars, two million dollars. I mean, that's like the flown that's, in to do it. That's the gig economy you want to be a part of. Again, sure. someday, someday they're going to fly the common good for a remote. This mega rich guy's be like, you know what? We would like to do a remote from our mega yacht. <laughs> I like it. I'm ready for that day. I see it happening for sure. All right. Well, those are some wild things that rich people buy that poor people don't even know exist. Hey, whatever your budget is like, we hope you have a fantastic weekend. Big or small, make it your own and make it an enjoyable one. We'll be back again on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.